Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. The Heritage Foundation's 2024 Index of U.S. Military Strength addresses an increasingly dangerous world. Wars rage in Syria, Gaza, Yemen, and Ukraine. In the energy-rich Middle East, Iran is a hair's breadth from becoming a nuclear power, threatening to immerse the entire Middle East in a war through their Hamas, Hezbollah, and Houthis proxies. And the Iranians, we know from 40-plus years of history with them that they pay no attention to our words if they're not supported by actions. And so we've been attacked 33 times. In Europe, Russia is producing more new military equipment today than it was before it invaded Ukraine. In Asia, Kim Jong-un keeps reminding everyone of North Korea's nuclear capabilities, including missiles that can reach the United States. Xi Jinping's China now has a 6-to-1 advantage over the U.S. Navy and ships in the Indo-Pacific. It's rapidly building modern combat aircraft and nuclear-tipped missiles and has been aggressively clear in its intention to replace the U.S. as the most dominant power in the world. Rather than the global diplomat, I would call them the global banker of disruption. I mean, they're the ones who are fueling Russia and Ukraine. They're the ones who are paying the Iranians for all of their oil exports. China and Russia are increasingly able to match our military might. And if we do not act now, the consequences will be seismic. We are in a very different strategic posture than we have ever been before on the cusp of facing two nuclear peers. Terrorist groups in Africa kidnap, brutalize, and murder civilians on a weekly basis. Closer to home, Nicolas Maduro's Venezuela threatens to seize oil fields from neighboring Guyana. Drug cartels continue to exploit poor or corrupted governance through Latin America to traffic people, drugs, weapons, and contraband into the United States. In December 2023 alone, over 300,000 more illegal aliens from countries all over the world entered the U.S., in the midst of this turmoil, the real question becomes, can the U.S. deal with this world? Can it protect its interests and ensure the world remains a place that favors America's prosperity, safety, and security interests? The Heritage Foundation's Index of U.S. Military Strength has reached a conclusion on this question. Not unless there's a change. For the second year running, the Index has given the U.S. military an overall rating of weak. At the beginning of this year, I submitted to the Congress a defense budget, which reflects my best judgment about what we and our allies must do to protect our people in the years ahead. 30 years on from the end of the Cold War, the U.S. military is half the size. Most of its equipment was designed and purchased back then. The clock is ticking on many of our Cold War era weapons. And the readiness of U.S. forces for battle is a shadow of the status those forces had when they confronted the Soviets. Innovation is slow. Recruitment is down. The U.S. now has the smallest and oldest military in more than 80 years. Our enemies know this, and our allies are even worse off than we are. The British would struggle to field a single division of land combat power. The Royal Navy has only 20 ships, few of which are ready for deployment. The entire British military is smaller than the U.S. Marine Corps. Japan, a critical U.S. ally in the Western Pacific, is improving its navy but not enough to deter a rising China. Germany's own defense minister has said its military is likely unable to defend the country. Over the 10 years that Heritage has assessed the condition of America's military, the story has been the same. Neglect, delay, underfunding, and excuse-making. Annual budgets are always delivered late, and budgets have always fallen short of inflation. Equipment isn't maintained or replaced. Critical training for our men and women in uniform is sacrificed. More attention seems to be given to social justice initiatives than to combat readiness. We've got a Pentagon running around worried about renaming bases and putting Chinese-made solar panels uh, on microgrids rather than focusing on lethality, on training, and having the very best of the best to deal with the threats that we're facing. Washington, D.C.'s priorities are out of step with the needs of a nation, and history is not kind to countries that fail to protect their interests. America has done it before but we've forgotten what it takes. The United States has to get its act together at home. We also have to get our act together as it relates to being strong internationally. Those two things go hand in hand. America's future depends on what we're willing to shape, promote, and protect. 
At present, our government doesn't seem to care enough to make the case for a military our country desperately needs. A peaceful world is possible, but only if we're willing to take on the mission. To find out more, check out the 2024 Index of U.S. Military Strength at heritage.org military. Gentlemen, please welcome Heritage President Dr. Kevin Roberts. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Uh, this is a big day at Heritage, but far more important than that, it's a big day for America and for the world. Because as my colleagues, who themselves are national treasures, have indicated for a second year in a row, our military is weak and unprepared for conflict. And the reasons for that will be discussed by our, our wonderful panelists, by our guest speaker I'll introduce in a moment. But if you would permit me, as the president of the Heritage Foundation, there's also a lot of pride institutionally that goes into this amazing research product. And so under the leadership of Dr. Victoria Coates, Mr. Rob Greenway, on behalf of all of us at Heritage, thank you for a job well done. That 10 seconds of institutional gratitude, however, is dramatically offset by the bad news that exists. And it's bad news that comes from an utter lack of innovation, an utter lack of a willingness to make tough policy decisions, not just in national defense, but across the entire federal budget. And you might not be surprised to hear at Heritage that we think those things need to change. But as a teacher, including as a teacher of the Constitution in early America, permit me for a moment just to make another observation. And that is, if you look at Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, there are 17 enumerated powers given Congress. Six of them are for national defense. At Heritage, of course, we believe in limited government. Congress's powers, as it relates to national defense, are fairly unlimited by design, because this is where our self-governance, our natural rights, are protected. And in spite of great members of Congress, including our guest speaker today, who are stalwarts on this issue, Congress has failed the American people. We don't celebrate that, but we're willing to highlight it so that this changes. While, of course, America's military weakness is a problem for the world, especially every free person on the planet, looking at the threats from China and Russia and Iran, the most important reason to be upset about this designation of our military being weak and unprepared is on behalf of Americans. So we want to change that. We want to see an America where we're no longer worried about Congress imposing gender ideology, telling us what cars to drive, implementing kill switches, telling us how to raise our children, but instead having the most lethal military in the history of civilization, which hopefully is used on a very limited basis. All of that to say that at Heritage while we believe in reading reality truthfully, and as you know, my colleagues are not bashful in speaking the truth, we always wed that reality to what the solutions are. And so you're going to hear some of those proposed solutions today. It is, therefore, a great privilege for me to introduce a friend, a great member of the United States Senate, a veteran of the United States Air Force, and being someone myself from the Gulf Coast, a special affinity for the great state of Mississippi. Please join me in welcoming Senator Roger Wicker. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, when I agreed to do this, I, I, I hearkened back to, I guess, two years ago when the, um, when the index was being unveiled and, and I think it was maybe your first really big event as president. And it, it was being held in the lobby there. And there were about 35 people. I thought that's what I was agreeing to. And here I find myself in front of this, uh, this great audience. Jack Keane was our speaker then. And his remarks uh, very much reflected what, uh, what we just heard from our distinguished president. Um, it, so uh, the Heritage Power Index, a decade of decline. Uh, it, it's, it's hard for an American to say that. It's hard for a member 
of the Senate Armed Services Committee, the ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, the would-be chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee to say such a thing, but it is true. And when you read it, as you will, uh, rating five military services, um, only one got a score better than marginal. Uh, and uh, regrettably, that was not our, our branch, uh, Mr. President, it was uh, the Marines. But uh, uh, everybody else rated marginal. And the, the title, A Decade of Decline, is uh, absolutely appropriate, though um, it, it almost sticks in, in my throat to say that. And it comes at a moment, at a pivotal moment of threat. And um, I, boy, I couldn't have said it really any better than, than, the, than the video. Let me say this about heritage. When I was a boy, I got elected to the House of Representatives back in alt uh, 94. Uh, heritage took our whole class, the biggest class, the class that gave us the Republican majority, uh, to Williamsburg, sat us down for uh, two and a half days for a tutorial. Boy, do I wish the current Congress uh, could hear what we just heard. That five minutes was well worth it. And I wish we could spend the time that we had, the luxury that we had as future members but not current members to get that, that sort of a lesson again. Uh, I, I hope we can figure out a way to get my colleagues, House and Senate, on both sides of the aisle to see that video and I hope it encourages them then to, to watch the podcast and our distinguished panel, which I will miss. I'm between votes. I voted um, and on, on a district judge nomination, ran over here, and another vote will ensue. Don't worry, though. Uh, Chuck Schumer has no uh, reason or, or, or no inclination to hurry up the votes. They take an hour. It's the it's the worst waste of time I've ever seen, but uh, I, I well it, it's a waste of time maybe not the worst. I have been in the military for a while. Um, <laughs> I do get a chance to listen to a lot of smart people. That's why I regret I'm going to miss the panel. General Kellogg uh, spoke uh, testified at a hearing and uh, was um, somewhat dazzling but uh, somewhat pessimistic. Uh, but we we hear from a lot of folks, Republican and Democrat. Uh, I talked to General Carrilla yesterday, classified setting. But I can certainly tell you one thing that he said is not classified, and that is that we are in a very dangerous period, the, probably the most dangerous period of time we've had since World War II. When my dad was in the service in Europe at age 19, just out of junior college, we hear, we hear secretaries of defense, past and present, Republican and Democrat, chairs of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, even the NATO Secretary General, and they all say publicly it is not classified. We are now living in the most dangerous moment since World War II. A lot of people call it Cold War II. We need to be reminded of that. Um, Xi Jinping... Um, I don't know if you uh, read the lead editorial in the Wall Street Journal today. A lot of people uh, read the Wall Street Journal for breakfast. Uh, they reminded us in the editorial that it was called Xi Jinping Stars as King Canute. Um, they, they, re they reminded us what we should always keep in mind. Xi Jinping is not only a, a brutal dictator, and uh, the author of Genocide on a large scale. But he's also a true communist. He is a true Marxist. And as such, one of the good bits of news out of uh, the People's Re Republic of China is that China's economy is the one black mark against their strategic strength. He is running the country into the ground. He's trying to prop up the stock market as the editorial mentioned today. He's cracking down on credit. He's cracking down on big tech. And the middle class is hurting under this real Marxist. His belief, though, is that uh, 
that the, the communist leaders, Gorbachev, the, the folks that saw the deterioration of the Soviet Union, uh, made a mistake by leaving true communism. That's the reason Xi Jinping believes they fell. But um, there's one thing that's going real well in communist China today, and that is their military buildup. Um, they've had a decade of national rejuvenation. Aircraft, warships uh, are coming closer and closer, buzzing Taiwan uh, to an extent that they would not have done a few years ago, publicly doing that to see what our reaction will be. The spy balloon, I think, was collecting data, General. I think it was uh, uh, taking a lot of stuff in, but the main thing they learned was the timid response of the leadership of the United States of America. We saw that coming. I, I, the public didn't, but uh, the, the folks that are supposed to look out for this, NORAD, saw that coming. And whoever was told about it, whether it was the President or Secretary of Defense or Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, made the decision not to shoot it down, to let it go over Alaska, then into Canada, and to hover over important military installations where they could get information. The most harmful aspect of that is what Communist China and Xi Jinping learned from that, is that they could get away with it. And of course, uh, once it was, had gotten all the information that it needed and was over the coast of uh, Carolina, they, uh, they cleverly shot it down. Um, what's Xi Jinping doing in the military now that we're not doing? He is increasing his shipbuilding capacity. A few years back, I got to be chairman of the Sea Power Subcommittee under uh, Chairman McCain. And a uh, chance to read over some recommendations, and I saw that, that the people who make recommendations about what we need to be a strong Navy said we needed uh, 355 ships in the Navy. And, I, and, and so, you know, as a sort of naive new chairman, um, I, I started asking about how do we get there? Um, well, that, that was just a number. It was, it was almost a, a fiction. There, there was no plan in that administration, which uh, was the Obama administration or the previous administrations, to actually get to this number. But that's a number you send out to all the generals and admirals around the world. And they say, what do you need at a minimum, at a minimum? What would you like to have? What they'd like to have is 655 ships. They came back and said, at a minimum, we need 355 ships. That is our requirement. And so... Um, being naive, I said, well, well, let's pass a bill, put it into the statute. Oh, well, uh, that would be a little uh, naive of you to do that. Uh, but I got John McCain to go along with it, and by George, we had the majority. And um, the Democratic leadership of the committee let us do it, and it is now in the statute. The requirement for Navy ships is 355. Do we have 355? No. Do we have 300? No. We're, we're well under 300 down in the low 290s, depending on, uh, on which ones you count. But we're nowhere, we're not where we need to be. The Chinese shipbuilding capacity is 230 times the size of our shipbuilding capacity. Um, I'm going to say that again. I'm, Chinese... 230 times greater in shipbuilding capacity than the size of the United States. To prove it, they launched 30 ships last year. And one was an aircraft carrier. Think of how long it took us to launch our uh, Ford air aircraft carrier. They are making ships big time, quick time. They have a lot of capacity. Uh, Mr. President, there's $3.4 billion in the supplemental bill to um, increase our submarine industrial base. Um, 
I, I sure hope there's some way we can get that amount of money appropriated before the next uh, fiscal year ends. Um, and then there's Russia. Uh, we know what's happening in Russia. The, the good news coming out of Ukraine is that it has awakened NATO. And, and I, think, um, I, I think this administration, the previous administration, and I hope the next administration are all going to agree that, in, that uh, strengthening NATO and making sure that they understand that they need to pay their way is a good thing. And I do believe it came as a shock and a disappointment to Vladimir Putin that we now have, because of his action in Ukraine, we now have two new members of NATO. I don't think he expected that. Um, and Iran and their proxies are causing, they're, they're causing us dismay and they're costing us money, but they're costing the, Amer the, the world economy big time by, uh, by routing trade around the Cape of Good Hope rather than through the Suez. Make no mistake about it, Hamas is a proxy of Iran in Gaza. Hezbollah is a proxy of Iran in Lebanon. We hope they're willing to stay dormant. And the Houthis are proxies of Iran um, in Yemen. Here are things we need to realize about Iran. They want Israel to cease to exist. They want Israel driven off the map. Parenthetically, let me say, I, I was on a trip with some uh, members of Congress as a House member years and years ago. Uh, we went to Lebanon and we're meeting with USAID. USAID brings uh, economic assistance to uh, people that are supposed to be allied with us. They showed us a map of the area and I started looking for Israel on the map that the U.S. government was showing us. Um, as, as in in the um, in the role of USAID, and we couldn't find Israel on that map supplied to us by USAID. Um, so I raised my hand, and Gary Ackerman, Democrat from New York City, raised his hand, and we both at the same time said, "Where's to our American representatives?" We both said, "Where's Israel on that map?" Um, and they, and they said, well, it's down here. We're calling it Palestine. Uh, um, this is the United States agency in Lebanon. And they, uh, they blamed it on the fact that Lebanon had supplied them with the map. What does that say? The government of Lebanon, our ally that we're helping to prop up, and um, they're not very well propped up, um, chose to call it Palestine. We, we all wrote a letter, every member of that delegation, and, and the, the response was, from now on, we will we'll show only maps that, that call Israel Israel. That, that's the dream of Iran, for Israel not to be on the map. Uh, they want the United States out of the region. They want a nuclear weapon, and you can ask these next guys... Um, how close they are, and they, they don't want a war. And let's be thankful for um, let's be thankful for for um, small favors. Oh, and I got a glass of water here, but I'm almost through. Um, no, make no mistake about it, Iran wants to stay out of war, but but they are um, they're involved in a lot of proxy wars. Um, will China keep North Korea restrained? Um, so we, we really, everyone from the United Nations to the folks working for us, Democrat and Republican, say this is the most dangerous time since Fred Wicker was 19 years old fighting in France and Germany and Belgium. So what do we do to answer 10 years of decline? Um, some people say, well, um, we, we can just shift some money uh, around prioritize, get that done. Let's crunch the numbers. Ask these guys. I, 
I, I don't think it's a matter of – I think we're going to have to go big. Um, the last couple of years, we've approached increases of 3 to 5% in our defense spending, and, and last year was not a, a terrible year. Nothing to be proud of, but we were able to increase it um, on a bipartisan basis. Part of the reason was Biden started so, so low on that. Increasing our defense budget by 3 to 5%, I do not think is enough. Um, thank you for putting Ronald Reagan, uh, who's still my hero, and still, I think, the North Star of, um, of any conservative movement in the Republican Party. Ronald Reagan said we need to spend 5% of our GDP on national defense to stop the Russians from going to war against us. Who knows what would have happened? But we went way over. We went to almost 600 ships under Ronald Reagan. Uh, he made a statement that he was serious. The world had no idea what he might do if they took us on. And so, guess what? They did not take us on. And we had a... Um, wonderful period, a 12-year period of uh, economic growth and peace. Reagan did it. Secretary Bob Gates, who uh, is in retirement now but still advises uh, anybody that will ask, says we need to do it. And, uh, and I would like to see us do it. I, I hope Heritage will help us. We have other think tanks that are working with us. But here's what we need to realize. We have a national defense strategy of the Biden administration that says we should go big. They don't realize that. Their OMB won't let them say it. The president won't ask for that. Uh, under the Trump administration, we had a similar national defense strategy that said we need to go much bigger than we are. And so whoever is in the, the bowels of the administration talking about strategy and getting the approval of the commander-in-chief to put this um, on, on paper has, have agreed to this. Number, here's our strategy, official strategy of the United States. The U.S. should lead in Indo-Pacific. All in favor. U.S. should lead in Europe. The U.S. should lead in the Middle East. This is our official strategy. The U.S. should seek to win, not just manage, against China and Russia. The U.S. should deter Iran and North Korea and terrorist groups. That is our stated strategy. Would that the Office of Management and Budget would allow the White House and the Congress to, you know, if I could have, if I could be dictator for one week, I, they, I would suddenly appear as head of the Office of Management and Budget. I, you all do realize how utterly powerful they are. They come out with a number and there you are, and somehow the people under the Constitution that have the power of the purse, we feel constrained by that. Um, shame on us. Um, we, um, I think, need a massive increase in defense spending. I hope you'll help us figure out why. When Pearl Harbor was hit, and I go back to my dad, he was, a, he was out on a Sunday afternoon in the big black bottom in the woods with some classmates. Came back to the store and they said, the Japanese have hit Pearl Harbor. This kid's response was, what's Pearl Harbor? Um, but they knew that war was on. It was a surprise attack by, by Japan and we were at war and we were at war big time. I think I've got this quote right. I think General Yamamoto actually said this. 
may be apocryphal, but somebody thought it for sure. He said, I think we can do okay for a while, but I fear that Japan has awakened a sleeping giant. And they had. And we went to work, and we, we suffered through a year when we weren't ready, but we finally got ready, went to war, and did what we would have to do if it happened again. In this case, we have an adversary telling us in public for us to hear. He wants to be ready to invade his neighbor, Taiwan, by 2027. We don't have to, we don't have to say there's going to be a surprise there. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't act like a sleeping giant for the next three years? Wouldn't it be great if we hearkened to the Biden national defense strategy, to the Trump national defense strategy, and put ourselves in a position to do this? Um, I got a portrait of Winston Churchill in my office Come see me. We'll get a picture made with Churchill in the background. Uh, the other choice is a, is a blues guitar in the background. E either, either way, um, I like both. Churchill said you can always count. You could quote this with me. You can always count on the United States to do the right thing after they've exhausted every other alternative. Wouldn't it be great if we quit being a sleeping giant for the next three to five years and got ready and, as Reagan did, stopped an adversary from doing anything stupid. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't exhaust every other possibility, but went ahead, made the tough decisions, spent the money so that we could save billions and trillions that would be spent in a war? I hope that's something that I can get advice from this great group about and work with you about. and. Uh, hopefully uh, work with a majority of the U.S. Senate about. So thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Senator. Good luck on the votes this afternoon. We appreciate it. It's been an honor to host you here today. It's a privilege, really, to have all of you with us today, and uh, I'd ask that you help welcome our distinguished panel. We're fortunate enough to have. I'd ask that they join us on stage as I briefly introdu introduce them. None of them require an introduction, but I think it's appropriate that we do so. Lieutenant General retired Keith Kellogg, now at America First Policy Institute, served as National Security Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence and Acting National Security Advisor under President Trump. Elbridge Colby, co-founder and principal of Marathon Initiative, served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Force Development and Strategy during the Trump administration, and Joe Kent, joins us uh, off the election trail. So thank you for taking the time to do that today and fly out to join us. 20-year veteran Army Special Forces uh, Foreign Policy Advisor to President Trump, and as you know, currently running for office at Washington District 3, if I'm not mistaken. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished panelists to the stage. As you've seen from the size of the index, we've got a lot of ground to cover and not much time to do it. And so we'll be brief, but I encourage everyone, if you haven't already, to take a look at it uh, and to dive into the details. We'll attempt to do that with some of the brightest minds on national security and defense uh, our country is fortunate to have. Uh, we'll begin first, General Kellogg, uh, with yourself. You've spoken about this uh, numerous times publicly, and we're fortunate for it. We've experienced, I think, an increasingly unstable environment. The video captured a little bit of that. Uh, it seems to be getting uh, increasingly delicate and precipitous as each day passes. I'd be curious for your judgment on how do you account for it? What is the cause behind the increasingly unstable security environment that our armed forces are required to face? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me today. And that the index, if you haven't read it, you ought to read it. They've covered to cover. It's really good. It's just not what they talk about, the, where the military forces stand. But the sub-documents as well in there to include everything from the defense to uh, industrial base all the way down. It's an absolutely magnificent document. You know, look, I, one thing I learned in the military, you do after-action reports, 
and you have to look at yourself and kind of inwardly look at what's going on. We have a problem sometimes with the government of not looking through not only our own lens, but when you flip your glasses over, looking through your opponent's lens as well. And one of the reasons why I think we're, we're a little bit lulled about what's happening is because of the size of the defense budget. When you've got an $800 billion budget, that's a lot of money. Okay, what are you spending it on? But I think we've got some significant problems here, which is causing us problems internationally. And if I had to go through them really quick, you look at them. First of all, I think we, when we look at the military, we've got a people problem. And I don't mean people as mean our great men and women in uniform. I mean it's a leadership problem. And, and we need to really look at our leadership and the amount of leadership we have and what they're really doing. What I mean by that is maybe we ought to sit down and think, maybe we ought to go back to what Marshall did with the plucking boards. Look, do we really have people that are really geared up to actually lead our military into the future and ask the hard questions why. Look, I'll give you one simple word, one word, accountability. Where was the accountability? We lost a 20-year war in Afghanistan. Who's been held accountable for that? Who's been held accountable for all the mistakes that we've made in the military? We have made them. We just haven't owned up to them. And I think we need to ask that question pretty hard, not only leadership, but where it's going. Second is an organization. We're a very bureaucratic military. And, and look, I'll give you one example. Okay, why do you have the old training and doctrine command of the United States Army, which was, quote, the architect of the future, which I served at? Okay, well, why do we have a second four-star command that's a futures command in Austin, Texas? Explain that one to me. You've got two with all the staffs that are out there. And you've got very large bureaucratic establishments that are out there that maybe we can look at, at what's happening. You look at internationally on the alliances. I said, I've got the alliances, but we need to look hard about it. And I know in the previous administration, we got hammered a little bit on NATO. Everybody knows what Article 5 is, am I right? What does Article 3 say? Article 3 is the funding article. And Article 3 says very clearly each nation of NATO will fund their individual and collective defenses. Okay? That decision was made in 2014 in Wales. The Wales Declaration, everybody signed up to it. 2% GDP spent on defense, of that 20% spent on modernization. Two thirds of NATO now still doesn't do it. Germany said they were going, after Ukraine, Germany said they were going to 2% plus. They were 1.6%. They're at 1.4 now. Germany had six submarines in their fleet six years ago. None of them could go to sea. Ask yourself that question. So when you look at alliances that are out there, and then the strategy. Where's the great strategy, the grand strategy we have for the United States? Looking at all of our, our, our adversaries, which this administration doesn't even talk about. It talks about competitors. France is a competitor. China is an adversary. Okay, but maybe we ought to go back and look at what history showed us. And when you go back, how about you all pull up and look at National Security Council uh, Document 68, written in 1950, all about the programs, procedures, and policies to counteract the Soviet Union at the time. Maybe we ought to go back and do something like that. It's a huge document. Read it. And then say, why didn't you apply that across the board? So we haven't done these things in the military. And we mask them by the amount of money that we spend on it. But we need to sit down and think, is this the military we really want to win our nation's wars into the future? Because as Senator Wicker said, and I fully agree with him, I have never seen in my lifetime in an environment that is so fraught with danger. And what normally happens, it's, it, mistakes happen and you go to war. And I'll close with this. Why don't we realize that? It's because of will. It's personal. I was asked by Martha McCallum three years ago in a panel up in New York City about what was your greatest fear. I said, my greatest fear is the current commander-in-chief does not have the will to execute a hard policy when he's going to need to execute it. And that's an important subject to take on. You know, if you don't have the political will, you can have the greatest capability and capacity in the world. But if you're not willing to use it, it's worthless. Thanks, General. It's, it's the strategy point I'd like your thoughts on, Bridge, as the author. And if you haven't read it, and I suspect that there's probably no one that hasn't read Bridge's book, Strategy of Denial, but you, but you certainly should if you haven't. It, it, we've got an issue with ends, ways, and means and rectifying. We've got tough choices. Uh, you've written about it then. You also, uh, as the principal author of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, had to wrestle with this. How do you judge we ought to in the current context? Yeah, well, thank, thanks a lot, Robin. It's an honor to be on this distinguished panel after Senator Wicker and Dr. Roberts. So delighted to be here. And I would just like to echo the point that, that this report from Heritage is, is really, really important in particular in two ways I'd like to highlight. One is highlighting the threats. And I agree that we are in the most dangerous time. Senator Wicker mentioned Senator McCain. Some of Senator McCain's comments I used to agree with. One I didn't was when he used to say about 15, 20 years ago that we never lived in a more dangerous world. I thought to myself at the time, 
you could argue that Americans hadn't been in such a safe world. Now, not at the pointy end of the spear, like you gentlemen, but for most Americans, it was, it was so I'm, I'm not, you know, somebody who's been in that chorus for the whole time. But I think we are now. I mean, I, I, maybe the Cuban Missile Crisis, but even going back in the sense that uh, the war's not going well in Europe, obviously there's an, a potential for an expanding war in the Middle East, sort of metastasizing. Uh, North Korea is acting up, and then at the, you know, most consequentially for those who know my point of view, the potential for confrontation with China focused on Taiwan, but of much greater significance than that. At the, so there's threats are there. At the same time, our military is not what it should be, despite spending almost a trillion dollars. I mean, that's a lot of money that we spend, over 3% of GDP on defense. And this is what, you know, and a lot of it is for reasons that are understandable. Senator Wicker gestured at them. Personnel costs, the higher costs of our defense industrial base, deindustrialization in general. At the same time, you got to look at the fact that there are very real political constraints. I mean, I don't see a lot of evidence that members of the, of the House majority, for instance, are aching to dramatically increase defense spending in the context of, of you know, 100% debt-to-GDP ratio. Um, it, it appears that entitlements are not going to be really on the table. I mean, wh whatever people in this, or I think about it, I, I don't really have, you know, it's not my thing, but I mean, I think that's a reality. Um, and the Wall Street Journal itself, Senator Wicker mentioned the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal says we can't borrow or increase taxes because that'll have negative macroeconomic effects. So a lot of my friends will say we need to, you know, dramatic increases in defense spending, but I just, you know, and, and here's the point that I would say to you, Rob. I think we all hope for a Republican administration. I, I know I do. Um, whoever is in the positions where uh, they're going to have to make, uh, they're going to be in positions of, of making not just kind of generic strategy decisions, but real strategy decisions, is going to have to get, in my view, super real about this. Even if there's the political will, and I support increased defense spending, even if there's significant increases in defense spending, it's going to be very difficult politically. It's going to take a long time to play out the systemic structural deficits in our defense industrial base and in the military that General Kellogg knows a lot more about than I do, but just gestured at, are not going to be fixed overnight. So we, you know, the way I look at it is we can see an iceberg out in front of us, right? And we're, we could say, well, you know, we're going to try, we're going to try double defense spending, triple defense spending. But I just, I, I think that, that a Republican administration is going to have to deal with that. And then you're going to have to make choices. And what are those choices? My choice is by far the most consequential thing. It hasn't happened yet. By far the most consequential thing is a defeat by China in a regional war, probably centered over Taiwan, but with significance way beyond that. And to Senator Wicker's, I think, very accurate points and are covered in the index, that is a very real possibility. Xi Jinping is on a peace offensive right now, but he's doing absolutely everything necessary to get ready for that. And I think it probably makes sense for him, given his stated goals. So we're thinking, and then at the same time, there's, I think Russia is a real danger. I, I actually am not one of the people who say Russia is a joke. I, th I agree with a lot of my Baltic friends and so forth, Polish friends, who are saying they, are gonna, they could be more of a threat in a few years, given that they're militarizing their economy. Who suffers? The Russian consumer. But it doesn't necessarily benefit us. And the Europeans, as General Kellogg was rightly saying, are way behind. We need our allies to step up. It's certainly, if, if President Trump is, is reelected, I think that's, I mean, I, would, I wouldn't presume to speak for him, but I think that's a clear message. But even if President Biden is reelected, this is a fundamental disconnect. And I think Heritage is, is, is a historic and really important, but it joins uh, from a different kind of vantage uh, assessments like that of the Rand Corporation over last summer, saying there's a huge disconnect. And what I, what I would stress to conservatives and Republicans is we cannot, you know, you, people may hope for a deus ex machina of 10% of defense spending, but we, we, got, we, could, we could catch the car, whether it's me or not, I wouldn't presume to say, but we, in a corporate sense, could catch the car, and we are going to have a real problem. And Xi Jinping may have an incentive to punch us in the face really early. So we had better be super, super ready and super, super real. And that's, I think, to me, the main derivation. Uh, you know, whether we want a two-war construct, I was part of the, the conversations that led to the shift to the one-war construct, not because we don't like simultaneity. Of course people would like simultaneity. But the question is, with your marginal dollar, which is in, in real terms scarce, do you put that in making sure you can defeat the Chinese or in fighting a second or third war? We think we might lose a war to China. So are we going to spend money on fighting Maduro? I think Maduro is a dangerous guy, he's a nasty guy. I think we got to get that right. And that's the, that, I think that's going to be a major issue going forward for conservatives, but it is a very real issue. It's not a theoretical issue. Well put. I mean, it is one, I th one of the clear disconnects that exists. There are several. And it's a growing threat or, in or decreased capacity to do it. But you're right. Even if we gave instructions and funding to the defense industrial base, such as it is, it would take 
far too long for that ship to turn sufficient to meet the threat. There's no question. It, there's another disconnect. I'd also, uh, Joe, like your thoughts on in particular, you, you served in small units where trust is the sinkhole non. It's the ultimate arbiter of whether a unit will succeed or fail. And, and, and we talk about grand strategy and about the entirety of the armed forces, but ultimately it comes down to small unit success, whether it's in whichever service. And in your experience, uh, it seems in our judgment, one of the things that are fueling the worst recruiting crisis in the history of all volunteer forces is the lack of trust, not just within the military, but also between citizens and government, where government is held now in such low esteem by its own citizens. Love your thoughts on one, the scope of the problem, and the impact that it's having on the force. Yeah, thank you so much for the question and thanks for having me here. Honored to be here with Heritage. I think one of the biggest issues that it's easy to overlook because we're inundated with so many different failures and so many different reasons why we shouldn't trust our government. When Biden put his hand on the Bible and swore in three years ago, he inherited the most battle-hardened military the United States has ever seen. We fought a 20-year continuous war with an all-volunteer military. And that wasn't on accident. People actually trusted the United States of America after 9-11, an entire generation was galvanized to go and fight. I did quite a few combat deployments. I don't really know many GWAT veterans that just did one or two. Most of us were repeat offenders. And so what Biden has done in the last three years has been nothing short of absolutely destructive, but also spectacular. The first thing he did when he came in was he said, hey, you guys have been fighting for the last 20 plus years. I don't trust you. I think if you voted for the other guy, you might be a Nazi or a white supremacist and we have to do this extremist stand down. And then the vaccine mandate, hey, take this shot or I will kick you out of the military. And then we watched Afghanistan implode under his incompetence. And as General Kellogg said, no one was held accountable for that. So if you mix all three of those things together in a very short amount of time with everything else that's happening in our society, but then also coming out of 20 years of us losing these wars and not being any better off for it, like what did we get from Afghanistan? What did we get from Iraq? I mean, right now we're funding the exact same militias that are shooting at our troops in Iraq and in Syria. It's absolute insanity. So if you're a young man or young woman joining the military, first you're, you're confronted with the fact that there's a really good chance that the apparatus you're volunteering for might actually hate your guts. If you're a patriotic American, you have a Gadsden flag, you, you, your parents might have voted for President Trump, but then also you're just like, what am I even joining? We can't secure our own border. I mean, tragically, the Supreme Court just, what, two days ago said, hey, Texas can't even defend their own border. So I think there's a major trust issue, lack of accountability, but then also, who are we as a country? Why do we go and fight these nations' wars? Why should a young man or a young woman be willing to go volunteer right now in this moment? And I think those big questions aren't being answered by Biden, by the Democrats, by everything that that, that wing is offering. I think it's gonna be incumbent upon us to say, hey, these are the clear-cut national security objectives. This is what we can actually do. Let's defend our country. Let's not get sucked into endless wars. And let's get rid of all this other nonsense that gets in the way of the military closing with and destroying the enemy. Couldn't have said it any better and, and appreciate that. I think you're absolutely right. That erosion of trust is not something that happens overnight and it takes, unfortunately, far too long to correct. Again, another reason why difficult choices require uh, sober and, I think, realistic assessments. General, you, you've observed, I think, all of us. who we, We've grown up with a, 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 an understanding and appreciation of the fact the world's a dangerous place, uh, whether it was the Soviet Union, now Russia, Iran is not a new threat to the United States. Uh, China, I think, maybe uh, the recognition is growing that we're in a new Cold War with China, and the reality is, I think, beginning to set in, at least I hope so. Um, what has changed in the last two years, appreciably, that in our judgment in the index has really accelerated the deterioration of the security environment and accelerated capacity, including comments and observations from Senator Wicker on China in particular, but. To what do you account this real precipitous increase in the deterioration of the environment and the increase of threats confronting the United States? You know, part of it's our own fault. And I think what happened is we were, as an organization, we, the, the United States military, we were so fixated on the Middle East that we actually forgot to think there was the rest of the world out there. And because of that, it, 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 there's nothing against the great men and women who fought in that war continually out there. My daughter did. My son did. So, I mean, you know, contributing to the, the organization. But then the whole military was just focusing on the Middle East and counter-terror. When the rest of the world kind of saw that and they kind of went their own way. And it was just, a, it, it was, to me, that's part of the accountability is when you see a lot of these people on television, and I'm on television, so I guess I'm part of the problem out there. <laughs> but then when they talk about it, you almost wait, well, you were part of the problem. You, know, you were the part of the problem out there that allowed us to get to the condition we're at. We had blinders on and we didn't look out there. Look, the day you can go check this out. The day before 
We talked to the Defense Department about pivot to the Pacific. Hell, we're still trying to pivot to the Pacific. Yeah, I know. Okay, but that was a big talk back then. So we kind of ignored it. That's what I was talking about the organization. We need to look really hard at our leadership and the current leaders that came up then. Because the current leadership, and here's the criticism I've got, the current leadership caused that. Because they were the young captains and majors who are now the three and four star generals. They need to own that. And, they, and we as a nation haven't forced anybody to own it. It's a harsh assessment. But I grew up in an army that you did after action reviews. And you were harshly critical of yourselves and what you did or didn't do. And we haven't done that self-analysis. Somebody pull up for me, if you can, the after action review the Pentagon did on Afghanistan, the 20-year war. There isn't one. Wow. Okay, just think about that. At least we should have done some reflection on it, not the Center for Military History. And so I think there's a lot of things we need to do. I think we can pivot. Can we do it? Of course we can do it. But I think it's going to be some hard assessments in the future, just not on the budget, which I think is important, but also on how the leadership in the military works. And, and I will tell you, and this is a very harsh assessment, and for everybody that served out there, but I was asked this question. So on public record, and I could say it again before, I was asked, somebody who's retired from the military, loves the military, father fought in the military, wife fought in the, in the military, was in Grenada, but still it's combat. My son fought in, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. My daughter did as well. They asked a hard question about a month ago on national television. Would you recommend men or women go to the United States military? And my answer was no. Wow. And that is because the way this environment has been. And Amber, you know that. because She's written a great book about it here recently. <laughs> but that's, uh, it's just the way it is. And I think we need to sit back and look really hard. And look, I think this is important to understand. American military has lost fights before. Mm -hmm. Okay? We have. And, and sometimes it's a great awakening when we do it. But the United States military has not been successful in every war it's fought or battle it has fought. You know, and you go back to the mere misses. You know, if it wasn't for Trenton, and we nearly lost the battle at Trenton when, when Washington crossed the Delaware on Christmas Day in the middle of the night and he defeated the Hessians in, in Trenton, which was a major shift towards the Revolutionary War. But look what we had a couple times when we nearly lost these fights. And I think we're cresting towards that. And it's again, and I say this very important, it's not because of the great men and women in the military. It's always a function of leadership and command at the senior levels. And I mean that from the guy who is the Section 2, Article 2 guy, Commander-in-Chief, all the way down, hold them accountable, national will, can we do it? And today, I think it's questionable. Now, unfortunately, I think we, we'd all find sympathy with your observations General Joe, do you think I mean, you've flown in, you'll fly back out? This is a, an island of sanity in, in the swamp, as America First is, and, and there are a few others. But you're going back out to engage with the public again on the campaign trail. What's your sense of the public understanding of the threat? Is there an appreciation out there that the world's a more dangerous place and we need to meet that challenge? You know, national security is something I think most people didn't follow heavily until very recently. I think that the way that we left Afghanistan, how tragic that was, losing the 13, all the imagery that came from that, I think that's really focused a lot of people's attention on the national security state. And then it made them ask hard questions about, like, wait a second, why were we in Afghanistan that long? Because quite frankly, a lot of people had forgotten. They also forgot that we still had troops in Iraq and Syria until they were getting shot at recently. So people, I think, at a very instinctual gut level can feel that things aren't right right now. But in particular, our wide open southern border. I hear from people all all the time. My state, unfortunately, is a sanctuary state, so we attract a ton of illegal immigrants and fentanyl. We're leading the nation in fentanyl overdoses. And I hear from people all the time that are like, why are we spending almost a trillion dollars on defense, but we can't secure our own budget? And all that ties back into the lack of trust. But people know right now that like, they're not getting the bang for their buck. They're not actually being protected by their government. And so, I mean, that erodes the, the public trust, but then that's also making people, I think, focus like a laser right now on what the big issues are. And it's very challenging for us to go and say, hey, we're going to need to increase defense spending when our border is wide open and the Chinese Communist Party is still killing our citizens with fentanyl. Yeah, 100,000 each year, the last two years, dying to that. And the border insecurity issue, I think, is bringing it home for most Americans, the intersection between the lack of security on the southern border and the national security threats. So there's no way to distinguish or separate those two. Virgin, your thought, what's the consequences of us not getting this right in the next couple of years? We've observed, yeah. you know, that this is an increasingly precipitous time. 
what are the, the consequences and what do we have to be most concerned with in the near term to be able to steer us back on course? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a bit of a hammer and a nail on, on the China issue, but I think, look, when you look out at the world and we got to go really back to basics, and I just you know, love what both Joe and General Kellogg have been saying here, but I, I, I want to highlight something General Kellogg just said that I think is so important is a sense of humility, obviously at the military level, but also just like at a national level, where there's this, I mean, just hearing you talk, Joe, and your incredible military record and it's kind of speaking, I mean, that's my impression of a lot of veterans who did repeat. You know, I always point out to like to European friends, you should watch the Wounded Warrior ads on Fox News because that, that's like, it's, it's like this human level sense of like, that's the experience of a lot of people. Um, and you know, you go back to Reagan, for instance, Reagan, that was the era of the stripes military. And, and we thought that we were the weary giant. And, and, and we, you know, I mean, I use the kind of football analogy, like I don't think Tom Brady won all those Super Bowls, but I think he couldn't be challenged. And there's, there's, a, you know, there's a lot of people who, who seem to think that we're still in 1999, that we can just keep borrowing and we can just, you know, the American people will be up for anything. And our, our adversaries are paper tigers. And by the way, the Russians did underperform, but actually now they're not underperform. They're adapting because, like us, often they screw up at the beginning, thankfully, uh, but then they adapt. You know, uh, I mean, Kasserine Pass or the Federal Army in the Civil War, plenty of examples for us too. Who, who are we to think at the mil at, at, at the whole level that we're unchallengeable? Um, and so, what are the consequences? Well, I think the biggest consequences, and, 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 and to me, it's like let's get back to basics. Let's run our foreign policy, and I think this is very consistent with what you know, President Trump is saying, and the message of America First is like, this should be run for the benefit of the American people, right? Like, and only in this country, given the kind of blobby ide ideology, is that somehow controversial? Because you can be sure that Uncle Merkel was thinking about it. You can be sure that like our, our, a lot of our allies were thinking, I don't want to spend 3%. I mean, I got hot under the collar at, with a nice British think tank the other day, virtually, just saying, how is it okay that we spend th over 3% of our income and you guys get away with spending one and a half percent. That's just, that, that stuff is done. That is done, whatever happens, right? And why does this all matter? I think if China, if we go back to the real basics and you go back why we're in World War II, why NSC 68, Kennan's speech at National Defense University, we do not want a hostile state to dominate the key market area of the world. Now that sounds vague and abstract and like I have a monocle, like World War I type style. But what it means is you don't want China to dominate what's over 50% of global GDP, because what are they gonna do? We already see it. They're gonna reshape trade. They're not gonna let us reindustrialize things like Senator Vance is talking about that makes a ton of sense, which is bringing back industry to our country. They are not gonna let us do that. I mean, I'm simplifying it a little bit, but they're gonna reshape the global economy around. And how do they do that? They're gonna do that through force. Why? Because they think we're strangling them. So we are already in what the academics call a security dilemma, but they are building the military to do something about it. And then we're, they're, I think it's deliberate. Whether they're behind everything, I don't know, but they're certainly cultivating it. They're stretching us out. I mean, we're, we're using tomahawks, I believe, or, uh, in, the, in the attack in the Houthis that would clearly be relevant for a Taiwan scenario. And in a conventional war, and I shudder to, to talk about this in this kind of company, but even marginal edges can be huge. I mean, look, the, the, the French usually win war games. If you, if you war game the Battle of France in 1940, they usually win. But because the Germans had the edge at this, this, uh, the river, I think it was the Meuse or whatever, you know, like marginal things can have huge impacts. So why are we screwing around on the edge? And then at the same time, if we don't start to get much more realistic, scary things can happen. Like the North Koreans are moving forward and we're saying that we're gonna sacrifice cities in Washington, in Washington state to, to prevent the North Koreans from doing nuclear coercion against South Korea. I'm supportive of the South Korean alliance but I'm gonna call, like, we need to evaluate. We need to reevaluate that. Because that, that, I mean, I assume voters in, in Washington State are gonna say, what? <laughs> like, excuse me? But that's like what the Biden administration is telling the South Koreans. At the same time, the Russians are rebuilding their military. They, I think it's very possible that guy is dependent on Xi Jinping and he's really angry and he's a nasty person and he's prepared to do evil things. All those things are true. So if Xi Jinping's like, hey, I need you to distract the Americans, could you attack NATO? I think he might be up for it, right? And then Iran with a nuclear weapon and you know, terrorist attacks and so forth. So this, like, if we don't get super real, this is not just about like, recognizing the threat. We have to say, we gotta reevaluate like a business that's about to get, go bankrupt. That's kind of where we are. We need to re fundamentally reevaluate or things could get much worse here at home. 
That's an excellent way to summarize the index. Uh, and I've got only three things left to do, and it'll only take me about 10 seconds to do it. Uh, first is to thank everyone present uh, in person and online for joining us today. Second, uh, to thank colleagues, our president included, uh, Dr. Coates, head of the Davis Institute, and my boss, and the team uh, at Allison Center for National Security that uh, worked hard to produce the index now for 10 years in a row. Uh, the second is, uh, please join me in thanking our distinguished panel, their thoughts and comments, and their work in national security. And last and most pleasant of all is to welcome you all to a reception uh, that is in the foyer immediately following the event. And again, thank you all for your time, attendance, participation. Have a great day. Thank you.